Good morning. I'm glad you're here. I hope that you've had a good small group time. Um, I think I know most of you, but I'm Elizabeth Myatt. Um, if you don't know me, my, I have my husband, Chris, and, um, and we have three children and have been at Grace for lots and lots of years. Um, so I hope you're enjoying your Leviticus study so far. Let me um, pray for us and ask God's blessing on our time before we get started. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh, Lord, I come to you this morning and I praise you for your word, for the truth of it. Lord, we know that your word is our hope, um, that there is hope for truth and for change in the world. Lord, and may we see it for the truth that it is. Um, may you allow us now to, um, to hear it, Lord, for it to, um, to soak in, for us to leave here and have a better idea of how much you love us um, and how much we can love the world. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so you are in luck. I said I'm actually not going to talk about sex for 30 minutes, so <laughs> don't, I know you're disappointed, <laughs> but, um, but I'm not going to. Um, I'll say um, just quickly, briefly about that chapter that um, I do think that we just have to remember that those people had been enslaved for 400 years. And so um, you know the stories of enslavement and how people are affected physically and psychologically and that they didn't know how to live. They didn't know how to live as a healthy um, and holy people. And so God um, is, is telling them how to, how to live in that. Um, we also have seen that God takes our sin um, seriously. He takes all of our sin seriously and his commands are serious. Um, but... Whatever you have done by way of violating any of those commands concerning sexual relations, um, Jesus is enough for that. He is enough for even that. And so whatever you have done, whatever you have done by way of sexual sin, whatever guilt you carry because of that, you, that sin is paid for by the blood of Jesus and your sin is gone by way of the scapegoat. So you can let it go. You can let it go, and you can know that you are forgiven. You can live as though you are forgiven because you are. You are. So whatever you carry there, you can let that go. Um, so we are um, going to focus primarily today on chapter 19. Um, we are going to start, and we're going to kind of skip around and read a couple of verses and then come at them from a different way. So let me start and read verses 1 through 4 and then 11 and 12 of chapter 19. Okay, so 19, one through four. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. You shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. And then 11 and 12, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Okay, so first here, we see Moses, um, we see God tell Moses to tell the congregation of people, um, be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. 
And so can you imagine, just for a minute, imagine hearing that command, imagine standing in a group of a million people and you hear Moses is like, okay, you're be holy because your God's holy. And so you're like, all right, I got, my God is holy. I'm supposed to be like him. So he says he's holy, I'm to be holy. Check, I got it. I'm gonna go, on, go forth in life and be holy. No, right? I don't even hardly know what that means as, as I just think about that word. And so our gracious God kind of in some clarity tells us um, some ways that we can be holy. And so he says in these verses that you can revere your mother and your father, keep his Sabbaths, not turn to idols, not make gods of cast metal, do not steal, do not deal falsely, do not lie, do not profane the name of the Lord. Sound familiar? Sound familiar, right? Some of the Ten Commandments. Um, and so we see him here go back over commands number two, three, four, five, eight, and nine. Um, and so does it strike you does it strike you that it's just interesting that he's re-giving these commandments? When I was first reading it, I was like, it's so, I don't know why he's giving those commandments again. That's funny. Um, like, he honestly didn't give them that long ago. I mean, Exodus 20 wasn't that long ago. And it was such a big scene when he gave them the first time. You know, it was like they had to like wash their garments and wait for three days and the whole mountain was roped off and they couldn't touch it lest they die. And it says that, um, that the Lord descended upon that mountain in fire and this, the mountain was wrapped in smoke, um, that he answered them with thunder. And it says in that, in, in there, in Exodus 20, it says the people stood far off and they trembled. And so I don't remember the last time that I physically like trembled over something, but I was, I'm gonna say if I did, I wouldn't have, it would be a long time before I forgot it. And it would be a long time before I forgot probably the desire to, to follow those commands so that he didn't break out against me like he said that he would. So it just hadn't, hadn't been that long. And so now he's giving these commands again. And so I'm kind of trying to figure out why he's giving these commands again. And so then we went to the beach for fall break. And so we, um, so we have, we have, so we went to the Gulf, and you know, most of you know that Hurricane Nate was on its way. And so we went on down there anyway, and um, we couldn't get in the beach the first, like couldn't get in the water the first day, but um, we, the second day we could. And so the, at the beach where we were, there were two red flags, a double red flag. And so where we were, that meant that the water was closed. The beach was open, but the water was closed. And so what that meant was ankle deep. You go in the water ankle deep, could wash up on your ankles. And so... We um, have three children, seven, nine, and 11. And so we tell these children, um, here's the deal. You can go on the beach, can't go on the water, ankle deep. We tell them of the danger of the water. We tell them what's good and right for them. Tell them about the riptide. You know, we tell them all these things. I'm not sure that they like stand in fear and trembling, but they vocalize understanding to these commands. We go out to the beach, right? We're sit Chris and I are sitting there. We're sitting in our chairs watching these lovelies play in the water. And you know the story, right? A couple of minutes. Water's a little bit higher on their legs. A couple of minutes, a little bit higher, a little bit higher. And just not long, that water's to their knees. Chris and I, we're calling them back, back, move back towards the edge of the water. And so this goes on all the live long day. This goes on. And so we see this lifeguard. She is fierce. She drives up and down with her four-wheeler. She's blowing this whistle. There's all kinds of people out in the water. She's pulling people out of the water all, all the day. And so that, that happened, just that, that's what I'm, so as I'm sitting there experiencing that, I said, Chris, you know, it's funny, 
Um, I'm thinking about that talk that I have to do in, on Leviticus in a couple of weeks. And it's interesting in the first couple of verses of that chapter, he restates, God's like re-giving them some of these Ten Commandments. And I've been trying to figure out, you know, like why he did that. And it's funny, I have the very same question as I sit here. Why am I having to give these children this command over and over and over? And Chris was like, yeah, the obstinate rule breakers that we are. And I was like, that's just it, right? You know, that's just it. The Israelites were obstinate rule breakers. They were, and God had to give them commands over and over again. And is this ever true of us? Is this ever true of you? Are there commands in your life that you know that God has given you over and over again? You know they are for your good. You know they are for his glory, yet you go against them over and over again. And he is calling you out of that water over and over again. Can you identify? I certainly can. I certainly can. So we see him here. Um, we see him give these commands in the sense of how they can live as a holy people. Um, let's jump now and let's read verses um, 9 through 18. And let's come at that from a little bit of a different spot. So 9 through 18 now. Um, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Okay, so we see here the famous love your neighbor as yourself command. Um, I know it's repeated at least 10 times in the New Testament. Um, we, so we know that that applies to us now. And so um, I'm gonna be honest with you. It is like one whole thing for him to tell me not to eat a pig and another whole thing for him to tell me to love my neighbor as myself. I mean, there is really so much love and so much concern and so much care for this person here. I cannot even imagine what that means to love someone like I love me. Um, so God, again, he gives them some specific ways here that they can love their neighbor as themselves. And so Les Newsome has a great way, breaks it down into five areas here that they are called to love in. So let's go over those five ways. Okay, number one, you can love your neighbor as yourself. You can love with your possessions, Specifically in verses 9 and 10, this is caring for the poor. He talks here about leaving some of the gleanings or some of the grapes for the poor or the sojourner. 
he's saying, in your day-to-day lives, in your everyday life, I want you to leave something to intentionally care for and provide for the poor. Um, Hold your money loosely. If you wouldn't wait until you were destitute or homeless or had lost everything to do something about it, then don't wait until your neighbor has either that you can love with your possessions. Number two, you can love with your words. Um, Verses 11 and 12, be honest that you have to tell the truth. You have to tell the truth. Um, Also, don't take things that don't belong to you, meaning tangible things, and also don't take credit where it is not rightfully yours, Um, even when it's hard, and even when it's not in your best interest. You can love your neighbor as yourself by telling the truth. Number three, you can love with your actions. Verses 13 and 14 talk about um, you have to pay people what you rightfully owe them, and you have to pay them when you said you would. Okay, you have to look out for people and not seek to hurt or take advantage of people that can't care for themselves. Okay, so love with your actions. Number four, you can love with your judgments. In verse 15, meaning you can't taint anything and inhibit fairness or justice. Specifically here in court, oh yeah, my lawyer husband says that these are five ways, including but not limited to Ways that you can love your neighbor. So, yeah. <laughs> so, it's helpful. Um, but that you can't taint fairness or justice in court. Um, you can't be partial to the poor. You can't, when you are in a position of deciding judgments for people, you can't, you can't side with the poor because you think that they may need it more. And you also can't defer to the great. You can't defer to who is seemingly more powerful or more um, may benefit you socially, that you cannot defer to the great in that. You have to be fair. You have to, you have to judge fairly. Um, this does not seem like a big deal to me when I read it, honestly. I'm like, of course anyone in court would be fair. They wouldn't be partial. But again, that lawyer husband of mine says, step into any courtroom in America, and there are examples of partiality, that it is rampant. And so, um, do we even know the willingness of our sinful heart to, to be impartial towards people, to do what we think might benefit us most? Okay, number five, love in your heart. Um, verses 16 through 18, um, you cannot go around talking bad about people. You cannot hate people in your heart, and you cannot bear a grudge. But in verse 18, you should reason frankly with them. It seems so logical. I think it's what we all teach our children. I can hear myself like, go baby and talk that out with her. Go and like, just go talk to her about it. Go do, go reason frankly. It seems, it seems like what, you know, what we, it seems natural. It seems like that's what we do. But how often, how often do we talk bad about people behind their back? How often do we do it? How often do we entertain that conversation with our friends? How often do we not only talk bad about them, but do we try hard to disguise it as something that is maybe even good for them, but we try hard to disguise it? Um, But how often do we do that? How often do we hate in our own heart, and how often do we bear a grudge? How often do you bear a grudge? 
maybe we can let go of some things that were done to us personally because we can know that we were okay. But if someone has wronged our husband or our friends or our family or our children, can you let go of those things? Can you let go of those things? He says that it is a way to love your neighbor as yourself to let go of all that. Okay, easy, right? You've got it. Got your five ways to be holy. You're like, check, I'm whole, I can do it. Here I go. I know, I wish, right? Okay, and so here's where we try to limit it. Here's where we try to limit it. Flip over to Luke 10 with me. Luke 10. You probably just have like your copied verses and you may not even have your, have your Bibles out. Luke 10. Okay, so the parable of the Good Samaritan um, so you're probably familiar with this story, um, but we see a lawyer here interacting with Jesus, and this is not a civil lawyer like that we would know today, but a, someone that was well-versed in biblical law. And so um, we see him ask Jesus in verse 25, we see him say, um, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, so Jesus answers, Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So this lawyer's like, "Uh, okay, well, I can't do, I certainly can't do all these things. Like maybe I can get this neighbor thing down. And so let me just get some specifics here, Jesus. Just tell me exactly, just exactly, exactly what I, what I, who I need to love. And so just, just exactly who is my neighbor before I, before I think of if I can do this. And so in verse 29, we see that lawyer. He says, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells him this story. And so, you know the story. Um, There is a man who is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. He is robbed and beaten and left for dead. A priest sees him, passes him by. A Levite sees him and passes him by. A Samaritan comes by, sees him and stops and cares for him. He binds up his wounds. He puts him on his animal. He takes him to an inn and he says, um, I'm gonna, and he pays for him to stay there and says, take care of this man, and when I return, whatever I owe you, I'll pay for you then. And so then Jesus tells that story. Then he asks the lawyer down at the bottom in verse 36, he says, which of these three, so the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, you go and do likewise. Okay, so Tim Keller helped us out in a big way here, and he shows us um, three ways where we try to limit loving our neighbor as ourself, and Jesus won't let us do it. So three ways that we try to limit it. We try to limit the who, we try to limit the when, and we try to limit the how much. And so first, the who. It is natural for us to want to give to and love and care for people who are like us. It is natural for you to look around this room and identify with people that are going through things that you are going through, people in your communities. It's natural to want to help them. It's easier to help them. And haven't you all, haven't you all thought it? Like, um, it's, it's hard to find good people to give to, right? 
Um, Jesus intentionally, in this parable, he intentionally puts a Jew and a Samaritan as the two racial groups here. And so the Jew and the Samaritan, these two racial groups were bitter enemies at the time. And so Jesus puts them here, um, puts them here against us, just them kind of against each other to show us that our neighbor is anyone. It is anyone in need on our path that we meet on our path. Um, We see this Samaritan here reach across a huge racial barrier to help the one in need. And so your neighbor is not just the one that you can identify with. It's not just the one that is like you. It's anyone on your path who is in need. You can ask yourself when there is someone in need on your path. Self, if that were me in need, would I help myself? The answer is likely yes. And when it is, you should love and help your neighbor. So by giving us this parable, Jesus is saying, I will not let you limit the who. Okay, secondly, we try to limit the when. Simply put, we want to help people um, we want to help people when we think they deserve the help. We've all thought it too, right? I'll be happy to help them when they help themselves first. When it's not their fault or when they deserve it. We are happy to help people when they have had some sort of terrible loss, um, some kind of natural disaster, or if they're working hard and just maybe ends aren't meeting um, during a time of illness, we're happy to help. But if we don't think they're working hard or we think they are irresponsible or foolish or we know something about their family that we don't like, then we tend to want to limit that love. And here, Jesus shows us that this is a flawed way of thinking And so if you understand, again, the historical context here of these two groups of people, the Jew and the Samaritan, you understand that the Samaritan would absolutely have believed that the guy who was dying deserved it. He deserved what he was giving. He did not deserve any help. Um, He gives us that example so we can see that this Samaritan, though he would have believed that he deserved death, we see the Samaritan reach down and help. Um, Jonathan Edwards' church at one point was making some excuses about why they could not help the poor, and he wrote this thing to him, and he said, um, but Christ loved you, pitied you, and greatly laid himself out to relieve you from all that want and misery which you brought on yourselves. In other words, if Jesus had looked down from heaven, had said, um, I only want to help the deserving poor with my blood, then he could have saved himself a trip because there is no one down here who deserves it. And so Jesus is saying, um, I didn't limit the win in my death. God's saying, I didn't limit the win with my son, and I won't let you limit the win either. Right, number three, we try to limit the how much. We tend to think, if I were doing well, I could help, but I am barely getting by. We're barely making, making ends meet. Um, and so Jesus, in this story, even though it's a parable and so it's not true, um, he shows us how this is, again, a flawed way of thinking. He puts 
them in this story, he puts them in a really dangerous area. This road, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was called the Pass of Blood. And it was called that because so many people were beaten and robbed on this road. And so it was a dangerous place. And so he puts them here. Um, and so this story um, of the guy who's been beaten and left for dead, but not dead yet, what does that tell us about the robbers? Like They're not far because he's not dead yet. And so when the priest walks by and leaves him and the Levite walks by and leaves him, like they're smart because they know, danger, the guy's not dead yet. There's someone, this is a dangerous area. Something's happened to him. Out we go. And so when the Samaritan comes, he knows that he is in a dangerous area. He knows that. He knows that robbers are nearby, but he, nonetheless, he stops and helps. And in this, he is risking everything. It's an incredible sacrifice that we see the Samaritan make. And he goes on to say, I'll pay for any amount of time that it takes him to get better, any amount of time. And so in us trying to limit the how much, are we essentially saying, I can't afford to give and it not affect my life? I can't afford to help and still do all the things I wanna do. I can't afford to risk and give and not be able to redo my house or go on vacation or get the boots that I want. I can't... I can't afford to help because I will have to sacrifice. And Jesus is saying, exactly, exactly. The Samaritan risks not only his lifestyle, but he risks everything, everything. And that's how Jesus is saying, I will not let you limit the how much. Okay, so now, are you like, I've totally got it got my five ways to be holy, got these three ways that I know that I try to not do it. And so like equipped with that information, I'm so prepared to go out into the world and live holy, right? Okay, I know. Um, you're not, I'm not. Um, no one can live in this way. No one, no one can fulfill all of this. And um, that's where that pesky world comes in and lies to us. Um, and so there's this guy, A.J. Jacobs, um, you might have heard of him. He's a journalist and an author, and he, um, he does these lifestyle experiments. And so he did this lifestyle experiment where he sought to obey every law in the Bible for a year. He gets the stack of Bibles, goes through them, and writes down all the laws, and it's like 700 plus laws. And he says that he obeyed all these laws for one year. And so after he um, did finish that year, he, there's several things that he learned. And uh, this is one thing, this little video clip for you, this is one, like, the thing, one big thing that he says that he learned. And finally, I learned that thou shalt pick and choose. And that's when I learned because I tried to follow everything in the Bible. And uh, I failed miserably because you can't. You have to pick and choose. And anyone who follows the Bible is going to be picking and choosing. The key is... Uh, and choose the right parts. There's a phrase called the cafeteria religion, and the fundamentalists will use it in a, in a denigrating way. They'll say, ah, it's just cafeteria religion. You're just picking and choosing. But my argument is, what's wrong with cafeterias? I've had some great meals at cafeterias. I've also had some meals that made me want to drive you. So it's about choosing the parts of the Bible about compassion, uh, about tolerance, about loving your neighbor, as opposed to the parts uh, about homosexuality is a sin or intolerance or violence, which are very much in the Bible as well. So we have to, if we are to find any meaning in this book, uh, then we have to uh, really 
said. Okay. Okay. So that's what the world tells you. That's it. You can't possibly do it all. So pick and choose. Pick and choose. Pick and choose what you agree with. Pick and choose what you think is easy. Pick and choose what you think is politically and socially acceptable because you can't do it all, right? Let's look at the last verse of chapter 19 today. Chapter 19, verse 37. And you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. One more time. And you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. That's not what the world says, is it? This does not say, thou shalt pick and choose. It says to do it all. God's requirement for them was to do it all, all of it. And so far in Leviticus, we've seen God require all kinds of things from his people and every time, he's made a way for them to meet those requirements. And this time is no different. In Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is saying, I haven't come to earth to take away the law. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to live it out perfectly. I've come to observe all the rules and all the statutes and do them. And, wait for it, if you have faith in me, in my life, in my perfection, in my fulfillment of the law, if you have faith in that, that is credited to you. That is credited to you. Romans 4, you have that slide for them. Romans 4 um, says, talks about Abraham's faith. And it says in verse 21, that Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. So if we believe this, if we believe that Jesus came and lived perfectly, if we believe that he has fulfilled the law perfectly, if we believe in the one God that has raised him from the dead, like this says, then that is credited to us. God sees us through Christ as having done it all perfectly. He sees us as having done it all. God's requirement for you and for me is to fulfill it all, all the rules and all the statutes. And he meets that requirement for you in his own son, Jesus. He meets it for us. He really does love you. He really does. He really does want to dwell with you. So you can know you don't have to pick and choose. You don't have to pick and choose. You, you, Jesus' righteousness is credited to you, and it is yours if you believe. It is yours. And that righteousness, it doesn't get any more perfect when you live better, and it doesn't get any less perfect when you don't. So you don't have to pick and choose. You don't have to sift through this and choose the parts that you think are right. You don't have to sift through this and choose 
You don't have to. Um, Jesus has done it all for you. He's done it all. Rest in him. Lean on him. Fall in love with him. Praise be to God for his son, Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we come to you and praise be to God for your son, your requirements of us. We cannot meet them, but you have done it for us in your son. Help us to see him, to love him, and to lean on him. In his name, we ask this. Amen.